This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, where you can meet like-minded people fighting for a new vision of aging. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Christine Ross for Libby Zneimer. New long-term care standards aimed at overhauling Canadian care homes. And it's Black History Month, but reparations for slavery in the U.S. have been stalled for decades. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. As Japan rapidly ages, the country is turning to electronic surveillance to confront an epidemic of dementia and monitor the vulnerable. But advocates have serious concerns about digital tracking, warning that the convenience and peace of mind offered by surveillance could threaten the dignity and freedom of those under watch. The world's oldest live in Japan, and some researchers estimate that a quarter of the population will have the condition by 2045. It's also the leading cause of missing person cases in Japan. The country now has a national dementia policy to better accommodate those with the condition. A Holocaust survivor who sued deniers and won has died at 95. Mel Mermelstein accused a revisionist history group of reneging on its promise to give a reward to anyone who could prove that the Nazis killed Jews. The Auschwitz survivor won a formal apology, $90,000, and a judge's affirmation that the Holocaust indisputably happened. He died this week in New York from complications of COVID-19. Meantime, in a new documentary filmed over 10 years, a former Nazi spoke about the shame he felt for being part of the murderous organization. Hans Werk, who died in 2019, grew up in Germany in the 30s and was taught the Nazi doctrine at school, where his teacher was an active member of the local Nazi party. The release of the documentary, Final Account, comes amid Holocaust Memorial Day marked last week. Researchers have discovered melatonin use by American adults has shot up more than 500 percent between 1999 and 2018, and people are using it in higher doses. Melatonin is widely used to help with sleep, even though there isn't much evidence that it works. The study authors say more research needs to be done to make sure melatonin is safe for long-term use for sleep at higher doses. The study was done by the Mayo Clinic and Beijing University. The Queen today celebrates her Platinum Jubilee, marking 70 years of her reign. But a Chinese manufacturer that produced items for the special occasion made an embarrassing mistake. They produced 10,000 teacups, mugs, and plates to mark the occasion. There's just one big problem, a typo. Below a picture of Her Majesty are the words to commemorate the Platinum Jubilee of Queen Elizabeth. Of course, it's supposed to read Jubilee. It's even more humorous for Brits familiar with the phrase lovely jubbly from a popular 1950s ad slogan for an orange-flavored soft drink. Your golden sun will shine 
95-year-old Tony Bennett is up for six Grammys this year and is still selling records. One of the last surviving music icons of the golden generation of jazz crooners and Lady Gaga, one of the biggest names in pop, have struck up an unexpected friendship and partnership. When Bennett's family announced he had Alzheimer's disease a year ago this month, few imagined they'd ever see him on stage again. But this past summer, with his family's help, he began rehearsing for two concerts at Radio City Music Hall with his friend Lady Gaga. His family continues to speak out about Tony's Alzheimer's to give hope to others who are suffering from it. I'm Christine Ross, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Over half of Canada's 30,000 deaths from COVID-19 were in long-term care homes. Two years in, as hundreds of homes report new outbreaks of the Omicron variant, new draft national standards for the sector have been released that the authors claim would have saved many lives. Advocates say the changes are long overdue. Critics say they don't go far enough. Dr. Samir Sinha is Director of Geriatrics at Sinai Health and also on the committee that wrote these proposed new standards. It's no secret that the pandemic has laid bare deep, deep systemic issues in long-term care. To many, that report by the military during the first wave was shocking to read, but those within the sector not surprised. There are so many things now to get right in the system. How will these draft recommendations change things? These draft uh, standards that we've come up with really are developed to be the blueprint of what we want long-term care to look like in our long-term care homes across Canada. So we've had these standards in the past, and these standards have become the basis of accreditation programs in 68% of Canada's homes right now. But standards can be so much more than just uh, the basis of accreditation programs. They can actually become the basis of legislation, of regulations, enforcement basically saying that this represents what Canadians expect should be happening in our long-term care homes. And so with the federal government currently committing to creating a new Safe Long-Term Care Act and also pledging $3 billion specifically to help support the implementation of new long-term care standards, I really think there's an opportunity for these recommendations um, that are currently in draft form and that public can provide input on. There's a real opportunity for for us to actually have these standards become a lot more than just kind of um, good statements on a, on, a, on a sheet of paper. You have said at the outset that these changes could have saved lives during the pandemic. So let's talk a little bit about specifics. Um, you want to make these truly homes where seniors can make choices and live with dignity by making their own choices. Specifically, how can we change that? We can significantly change it by really reorienting the way we provide care to be what we call have a resident-centered focus, for example, which really fundamentally changes the way we provide care to asking really first and foremost, what do residents want? So by asking a resident when they want to eat, for example, when do they want to bathe, for example, um, you know, or what is important to them, for example, then all of a sudden you can provide more individualized care that's more in line with what the resident actually wants and needs, for example. Um, and that can significantly just improve kind of the culture and, and, and the feeling of a home because, you know, in, you know, we always say a person's home is their castle, for example. Uh, because they get to say what goes on. Where right now, unfortunately, the way we fund or underfund our current long-term care homes across the country, often these homes are providing or funded to provide less hours of care than they should be providing. And so really then staff are just trying to be efficient. They're trying to get 10 people bathed and fed, you know, within within an hour or two, as opposed to actually 
being funded appropriately to start providing that individualized care that people want. And we also look at um, recommending that the infection prevention and control guidance that's currently being recommended in homes should be upgraded to the same guidance that all Canadian hospitals are now using had we had standards in place that actually better uh, think about the residents' needs um, and better support their access to families and visitors. Um, And if we actually have um, higher quality uh, you know, better staffed homes and, and a higher level of, of care being provided, um, then we probably wouldn't have seen, um, you know, the wide-scale outbreaks that we did. We probably wouldn't have seen the level of death that we saw, especially when Canada leads the world right now mm-hmm. um, in the number of its deaths or the percentage of its deaths happening in these settings. So critics like CARP, which is Zoomer Media's Seniors Advocacy Group, and another group for LTC say that while they agree with the overarching principles in this, the guidelines are just too vague. They won't be mandatory, that the standards don't address the for-profit homes. And they also say that maybe, you know, they offer suggestions like amending the criminal code in cases of abuse and neglect. What do you say to those people? I agree that we should look at the criminal code and already, you know, in the in the Minister of Justice's um, mandate letter, it talks about amending the criminal code um, to look at issues of senior abuse and, and other issues. What we very clearly state in our standard is these are issues that we clearly know need to be better addressed and these are things that need to be addressed appropriately by the jurisdictions overseeing home um, long-term care homes um, you know in their respective areas it's great to hear that groups like carp and um, and others basically say hey we like what's written here for example but we want it to be more specific I agree so what we've asked all Canadians to do in this draft, for example, is tell us, what are we missing? Where do you want us to be more specific? Because the one thing that I think a lot of these, um, um, that a lot of people um, may also be interested to understand or appreciate better is that we're asking them to say, what do you want that, in terms of that level of specificity that you want around the statement, for example, every single one of the 183 criteria that we have listed that everybody seems to agree with, we then want to uh, write guidance, evidence-informed guidance This process has taken almost two years, um, you know, listening to um, various stakeholders and consulting with them. So what is the next step? Over the next 60 days, we're asking Canadians to take a look at these, to actually contribute their advice and their support, contribute the evidence, tell us what they want in the guidance. And then we are required by the Federal Standards Council of Canada to then um, respond to every single comment, show how we're actually reading every single comment, how we're reacting to that. And that work and that evidence-based work that we need to do to write the guidelines are the next steps we do after the public review. And we're hoping to have everything completed by the end of December. Dr. Sinha, thank you so much for this. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Christine. Dr. Samir Sinha is Director of Geriatrics at Sinai Health and also on the committee that wrote these proposed new standards. To offer your input, visit longtermcarestandards.ca. I'm Christine Ross, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, Canada has approved reparations. Will the U.S. be next? You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, helping you unlock money you didn't know you had. Members-only discounts that can save you tons. Find out more at carp.ca.
black Americans have been fighting for reparations tied to slavery for generations. But how close are legislators to making it happen in 2022? Opponents say maybe the time to redress slavery and the discrimination that followed has passed. But the issue of reparations are back in the spotlight this month during Black History Month. We reached Dr. Earl Lewis, founding director of the Center for Social Solutions and professor of history at the University of Michigan. There have been calls for reparation for enslaved men and women and their descendants for years since the Civil War. Yet debate continues in your country over reparations with really no clear resolution yet. What are the stumbling blocks? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, African-Americans at the end of the Civil War, as early as 1865, uh, organized and called for some type of reparations. Uh, Callie House was one of the principals involved in that early effort. Uh, to actually create a system that was actually established for union officers and union soldiers where there was a pension plan. So she said uh, for those men and women who had actually endured slavery, it should be some kind of pension system. That was set aside uh, and uh, never followed through. And for the last 150 years, there's been a raging debate in the United States about reparations. So, you know, Canada has our dark past with how it treated Indigenous Canadians, the U.S. with its unjust past with slavery. In Canada, as you're probably aware, the government has struck a multi-billion dollar settlement with the First Nations. So if there is no national will for change in the U.S. at this point, are there plans for state or even local levels to implement a policy of reparations, kind of a bottom-up approach? Yes. So right now there are two things happening uh, in the United States. At the federal level, after really languishing in committee uh, for more than 20 years from uh, 1989 until uh, just last year, 2021, at the very least, the Judiciary Committee in the House uh, voted to move uh, to uh, the full body a commission uh, to study reparations for the descendants of African-American enslaved peoples. And so that's happening at the federal level, whether or not it actually moves from the House and gets um, bipartisan support there, as well as in the Senate, is still to be seen. But at the local level, uh, at the state and local level, there are moves uh, underway uh, to look at and explore um, reparations possibilities. You're up against high-profile politicians like Senator Mitch McConnell, who says he's very much opposed to reparations because there's no one involved in slavery still alive. But the legacy of slavery is still very much alive in your country. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm an American historian uh, and one who understands that we're not talking just about uh, the period of enslavement from eight, from 1619 to 1865, um, but the legacy of slavery actually visited upon people during what we refer to as the Jim Crow era, that period from the late 1890s through the 1970s. And so there's that period, but there's also a third period. One could actually look at the disproportionate effects of mass incarceration during the so-called war on drugs and realized that it uh, really disproportionately affected black and brown people in the United States. And that could be a third period. So uh, to Senator McConnell, I would ask him and and others like that to really revisit the full uh, period of American history rather than stopping the story in 1865. You know, the high-profile deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery remind Americans, remind the world pretty much that racial injustice in your country is still very much alive, Um, not to mention the ongoing health disparities based on race exacerbated by the pandemic. So, you know, is this not enough to offer momentum to the idea of compensation? 
I think it is. And in fact, in some ways, you can say that this last period reminds us that we're dealing with more than one pandemic. Uh, there's the, indeed the health pandemic associated with COVID-19, but there are also these racial pandemics uh, where if the pandemic is the finest prolonged period of injury and death, uh, we can see in some ways the death uh, of uh, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, among others, uh, as not the capstone of a story, but the continuation of a long story. And hence, uh, in Evanston, Illinois, in Asheville, North Carolina, and in about 13 or 14 other uh, jurisdictions where mayors have come together, there's a group called Mayors Organized for uh, Reparations and Equity, and that are all beginning to say, let's study this, let's address this at the municipal level, at the local level. Uh, and there's precedent for that. In some ways, the change that we saw uh, that culminated in the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was the result of agitation both at the local and the national level. Now, I understand that um, people are watching the ongoing debate in California closely over addressing the wrongs of history. Is um, Could there be movement within that state? Uh, yeah, absolutely. California is uh, one location. But I think the encouraging part is, is that um, there are communities around the nation and states and municipalities saying, let us do the work. Let us start this hard work of examining and not only examining, but where we can come up with solutions, let's offer solutions. Dr. Lewis, what do you hope most for Black History Month? I hope that we pause long enough to say that we have the courage to actually look at our past honestly uh, and with the kind of due diligence that's required if we're actually going to chart a future together. Dr. Earl Lewis, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That was Dr. Earl Lewis, social historian and University of Michigan history professor. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Christine Ross for Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Huddy, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.